Hello, and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Today, we talk with Mark Milne and Tim Potosik of the 25-year-old Canadian indie rock label, Sonic Onion. These guys have been home to Trouble Charger, Hayden, and more modern acts like Terra Lightfoot and Basement Revolver. The great thing about this label is they're from my hometown, Hamilton, Ontario, and they were kind enough to invite me into their office to sit on their cozy little love seat and ask them about what it was like to start a record label 25 years ago. Found this uh, documentary, or not a documentary, but like a featurette on you guys on YouTube. It looked like it was from 94 or 95. I don't know if it it was like maybe like a six o'clock news piece or something. Mm. And uh, you guys look great though. And I was thinking about how, (laughs) this is like from 95. And I was thinking like, if you dressed that way today, you would look like any average indie rock band from today. Yeah, we, yeah, it's kind of stayed stapled. Yeah, <laughs> staple look. It was a great piece, though. Thanks. Um, now, with the I was confused. You have a documentary coming out, mm-hmm. and but this isn't the twenty fifth year, is it? Or no, we're, well, we're saying it is. We're past. Okay, we're yeah. past it. Yeah. Okay, and so ninety two was like official, or what was your official? Well, we started in ninety. 90- to unofficially, but okay. we call it April 93 because that's when we filed paperwork with the government. Oh, okay. okay. In April, we filed for like a partnership uh, with the province of Ontario and set up a proper bank account. And, right, 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 right. Yeah. And, and so... 90, uh, yeah, 97 was the corporate, the actual corporation. Yeah, when well, we couldn't change it to a partnership to a corporation. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then the documentary. So I'm just kind of getting my bearings here. So the documentary is something that is coming out this year, mm-hmm. and is that that's just a documentary? Is that celebrating the 25th? Is that the idea? Yeah, it's oh, like yeah. a basically a a timeline of you know where we're at, and we've got a little like a a limited edition double LP 25th anniversary oh, nice. top 25 tracks yeah yeah you know picked by mark yeah. and tim type of thing that's great that we're going to put out in conjunction with it it's just sort of to celebrate a landmark we've hit a landmark yep you can count the labels that are 25 years old on one yeah, hand i true. think in canada yep. now oh definitely in canada <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe a, maybe two hands but there's not a lot of us yeah. that have made it oh this for long. sure this is tim one of the co-founders of sonic onion so it's um yeah. just something that we wanted to I don't know, put a pin in and especially make- labels that are still signing bands and still doing new releases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, labels have changed. We used to be like, it was probably more the first 10 years was more about how cool the label was, not necessarily each individual band. Like the mm-hmm. bands were cool and had their fans, mm-hmm. but the, la- the lab- labels had in the nineties labels had a meaning. Right. And yeah. now ma- labels, I, I don't That's think they have meaning. Right. Like, Sounds think, awful, yeah, definitely. It's more about the artists now, and it's like doesn't, and we don't even. I mean, we care obviously because right. it's our company, but like it's a it takes a backseat. Yeah, because we even get questioned a lot. Like, are you even? It's like, oh, you guys are still putting out records. It's like, yeah, it's t- completely changed. It's not like Sonic Onion, Sonic Onion, yeah, Sonic Onion. Right, it's more right. like here's all the individual bands, and interesting, yeah, we don't matter. Right. So in the nineties, <laughs> background. So in the nineties, like at that <clears throat> time of like sub pop and whatnot, it was about the identity of the label. And here's Mark. Well, I think that it was, in terms of people's perception, I think from for our point of view, it wasn't really about the label so much as it was about the bands. But I think back then, people placed more of an emphasis on the brand of a label, and that kind of didn't work for us to some extent because I think with a lot of labels like Touch and Go or discord or emerge you, you kind of had like although they had like a lot of different sounding things that what they released kind of fell into like at least a loose kind of like well they had group a sound. of thing like sound there's like yeah. a sound you know what yeah. i mean and like we didn't have that like right off the bat we had like four bands that sounded completely different and i think that that's kind of what set us apart from other labels and that yeah it's like a cool label with cool bands but there's not a particular sound yeah and I think that we saw, you know, I remember early on thinking like, you know, we realized that we were flavor of the month for a while and we thought this is amazing. This will not, this will not last. <laughs> yeah, we knew that. We knew right. that really? right off the yeah, bat. Yeah, we're like, yeah. cause you know, you've, every label's had like, you know, super sub pop had their, definitely had their time. Every label's had their time because they have a hit or they have a few right. bands that do really well, like, you know, consecutively. And we just kind of thought that's not a real long-term plan. Mm. especially if you're you know if you focus on one genre uh just like 
inevitably taste, people's tastes will change. So you were this hot shit label where you were stealing uh, acts from from bigger labels and and the people were saying that everything that you do was cool in the 90s and you were saying you're saying here mark that it was completely diverse but how did you know in your 20s that you were just the flavor of the month and to prepare for uh this to pass how did you how were you so it was a gut feeling just a and, gut feeling and we just because it, it kind of, it not that it came on instantly, but it came on quickly and it did sustain itself for quite a long time. But, w- you know, we knew that we should and just instinctively be prepared mm-hmm. to not, you know, when you walk in the room, you're like, oh, there's the Sonic Onion guys. It's yeah. like eventually it's going to be, there'll be another younger, yeah. cooler. Yeah. That's why. It's like yeah. anything. It's yeah. like high school, you know, and yeah, like yeah. you know, you can be the, if you realize that, you know, there's some people that don't realize they're the coolest shit. Yeah. And then, you know, then, and then it's always the cool guys from high school that end up being the fucking garbage men. Sorry, garbage men. But you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's true. Though. It's, it's like, like a, yeah, I think we realize you that don't want to be through our yeah. limited you experience. I don't think you want to be the cool guy. No, no. Because eventually it's like, yeah, I would agree, man. Like from high school. Were you the, the cool guys? guys I Were you the now. cool guys in high school? No. I had an element of it, but yeah, maybe an <laughs> but, element of it, but not like, not the, like not the top not level. Like the, the band didn't, did the band make you cool? When did you start? I think the band? we thought so. <laughs> yeah, well, we really liked it and we really enjoyed doing it and still do. So it's for us, it was like personal. Right? Were you in high school when you started the band? No, no, no. We're oh, in okay. univer- I was university. in university when I met Sandy and we were still going to university. And I would, I went to school in Montreal, but I had a job back home. I would come home and work every three or four weeks, I'd work a full weekend and then yeah. that would kind of help me get through every month at school. And so on those weekends, I would get together with him and we would practice okay. and start, you know, writing songs and getting things going. And then shortly after that, that we met Tim. Okay. And I think we all had a multitude of crap bands in high school. I mean, I played in high school and it was all garbage. I mean, it was yeah, fun yeah, still, yeah. but yeah. we knew it was like, you know, well, I knew anyway. It was I got to like, play nobody's going to care about this. This is super fun. <laughs> It, and I think that just translated to we just had a good time. Yeah. yeah. I got to play in a band in high school where I got to go play like the Rivoli and the BMZ Club and Mohawk College with guys that were a lot older. I mean, yeah. that, when I got my taste of that, I was like, oh, this is cool. I want to do this. Yeah. And they were like a kind of a cool band at the time. And I was like 15. And they were like 18 and 19. I'm like, oh, I could pull you into doing this. Yeah. I, I want to, I know that, uh, I know that the label came out of this, uh, a need to, to sign your own band that we're talking about. So, but I want to kind of ground us for a second here. So we're in Hamilton. We're talking with, uh, Mark and Tim of Sonic Onion celebrating just over 25 years. And, um, the, our listeners, about 80% of our listeners are Americans. So to give a little bit of a geographical thing, because I think the city of Hamilton plays such a huge role, certainly does today for this label and the identity of this label. Um, but I'm curious as over the past 25 years, how how this city has played in. And for our listeners who may maybe aren't familiar, Hamilton is like a, a blue collar city, um, not too unlike Pittsburgh or Flint even at a time. It's, it's hugely growing now. Um, and the art scene in this city, as as with other industrial cities, is growing. Uh, Hamilton is is we're an hour north of Buffalo, an hour west of Toronto. I've always thought it's such a great location. I mean, Detroit is is not far, and Toronto's not far. Montreal's not far. Boston, New York, mm-hmm. Buffalo. I've I've always thought this is a great city. But just to kind of ground some people here who who want to do a little Google Maps search while we're talking. But I want to tell you something. When I was a teenager, my grandfather. Uh, would drive me across town to Dr. Disc and park outside. I'd go in and browse for some CDs. This would have been in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, I remember seeing the Sonic Onion Recording Company sign outside and thinking, that must be like a stereo repair place. Because (laughs) the reason I thought it's like in the late 90s, early 2000s, I thought there's no way that this this blue collar Hamilton and and my grandfather worked in the steel industry and all the companies that I was familiar with were offshoots of the steel industry. I thought there's no way that a, a legitimate rock and roll record company uh, would, would have its home base in Hamilton and not in <laughs> Toronto or Montreal. What was it like for you in the nineties? Did you, did you ever think that you would maybe go on to open up shop in Toronto or New York or something, or uh, what was it like starting the label here in Hamilton? I think the reason we started and stayed in Hamilton, well, started was essentially uh, growing up in, in high school. Um, I lived in Burlington. Tim lived in Dundas and Sandy lived in Stony Creek. 
which for those who don't really know the area, those three towns are on the edges of Hamilton. They all border Hamilton. Right. And so when we grew up in high school, when someone talked about downtown, they didn't really mean downtown Dundas, downtown Burlington, or Stony Creek. They meant downtown Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So downtown to us was Hamilton. We'd come into Hamilton to go record shopping, to go see bands and whatever else was yeah. going on, yeah. that type of thing. Um, so when we had our first post office box, it just made sense to put it downtown Hamilton because that was where we had shows. That's where we did shows. That's where we posted for shows. Hmm. And eventually we opened up an office in Hamilton and we all moved to Hamilton shortly thereafter. Um, but I mean, we've always stayed in Hamilton. We've never thought about moving to Toronto. We always were asked, when are you moving to Toronto? Because the rest of, or at least a good deal of the Canadian music industry is in Toronto. And as we got more popular, we're like, oh, when are you moving to Toronto? When are you moving to Toronto? It's like, we're, we're not. We're not. Yeah, there was not. a pressure. But yeah. we, and I mean, I guess we felt it, but we were like, whatever. And we were also, you know, grounded here and realized that the affordability of being here was even at that time, right. quite a big difference between being able to afford Hamilton and being able to afford Toronto. Now it just seems even more outrageous. Um, and that's why Hamilton is also seeing an influx of more artists and people moving from Toronto. It's not like, you know, from Toronto to Hamilton. Hamilton is not that it's cooler, it's just more affordable. And there's a community here that is open arms, welcoming people. So that's kind of been the shift. And we're just lucky we stayed. And we stayed for a multitude of reasons. And uh, we've always waved the Hamilton flag and we've mm-hmm. always felt, you know, maybe it, it was better. We definitely gave up, I think, some opportunities not being in Toronto, not hanging with the cool kids. Yeah. Because they're you definitely so? a fucking cool kid crowd in yeah. Toronto. Sorry, but it's there. And yeah. it's like, if, you know, we're on the fringes, I can get in. <laughs> but I don't know if I'm always welcome to stay. You, know? um, you think things would have played out differently if you had moved? I think, I think so. Doors would have opened, but also opportunities would, would have, have closed. closed. So oh, yeah. it would have just been different, right? Yeah. And who knows what it would have been. Maybe it would have been great. Maybe it would have been disastrous. Mm. Can't really, you can't really go back and predict that. We're very, we knew what we could control in Hamilton. And we felt like, you know, not that we're a big fish in Hamilton ever were, but we felt like we were like, you know, at least a prominent player. Right. You know, in the Hamilton scene. Right. And you know, there's the big fish, little pond, little fish, yeah. big pond yeah, scenario. Yeah, and it's kind of like, true. okay, you know, we can stay here and and craft our business in an affordable way, in a methodical way, mm-hmm. rather than rolling the dice and going to Toronto and it, everything escalating and pressure might have been bigger. Right. Yeah, I mean, you never know what could have or would have happened, but I kind of envisioned back then and the same thing now is that if we had moved to Toronto, we would have been under different financial pressure and we would have made different decisions based on that. And mm. we would have probably not been in the same place we're in now. We might've been in a different place, but I'm not sure that's the place we wanted to end up. And I think having that pressure financially to like have space and employ people and do, you would do things differently. And I think that we would not be doing what we are now. And we probably, probably be, would be less happy because we probably would have ended up being beholden to whether it's another company or an owner or something like that. Whereas here we knew we could, you know, control our own destiny and do what we want and change things any way we wanted and kind of play by our own, by our own rules. Whereas I think moving to Toronto, we would have had to play by the rules of others. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't want to, we're not really into that. We really have had to change our business a lot. A lot. I mean, we are still a label and we still do a lot of the same things we did. Yes. But there's been a huge transition over the 25 years of the things that we focused on and the way we've transitioned our business. To I find survive. that I, and I will get to that. I find that so fascinating um, because some labels have just done the same thing, but looking at, and I know what, you know, you and I have, have chatted years ago and, and, and just the, um, the different things that this label has done. I find it very interesting. And I think now it's more of a modern model of, of labels because a label starting today, just releasing records and not doing some of the other things that you've done, I think it would be more difficult. And mm-hmm. I think it's so unique to Sonic Onion to be so diverse. And we'll talk about the festival and, and, and some of the other things. Um, so you started the label as a way to put your band's cassette. Is that right? Yeah. Um, much. Well, yeah, ours and other bands. We were basically, we were playing with a lot of other local bands that we were become friends with. And it seemed to make sense to start releasing records for ourselves and them knowing that no one else was going to, and we thought they were worthy of having records released. 
And we thought, well, no one's going to come to Hamilton and release records for these bands. You didn't think we'll, we'll do it. You didn't think to send demos to other labels of your no, own? No, nev- never. Why? Because your music was just well. We just didn't think who would care. Right. Just didn't <laughs> really think anyone would be interested. And I kind of thought too well. How hard can it be to run a label if these people can run their own? <laughs> these people can run their own labels and put out their own records. I mean, you know, it's like you know, some of the labels that we looked up to were you know, often um, you know started by bands, Discord and Merge. Primarily, I guess you'd look at those, and it's like you know, they're nice people. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're smart. Yeah, we're nice. We're smart. We can do this. <laughs> you what said- will it take? <laughs> it's also weird too. Like you know, it's just from moving past that and forward as we like started to like, you know, do the, we got a little bit further in our adventure and we're touring Canada and then touring the U S and visiting and meeting all these people and meeting them and being like, Oh, and, and re- then it really dawned on you. <laughs> like to going to merge records like, and be yeah, like, wow, it's like, man, we, they're sitting we, on the we're floor bigger doing, than, we're yeah. bigger than half, like more than <laughs> every American label we're going to. We, we now have more staff than they do. It's like, holy. And, because, you know, you get yeah. a built-up image oh, in your mind totally. of what something yeah. is, and you yeah. think it's bigger than well, yeah, it is. I, think, I remember go, when we were in North Carolina going to Merge, and yeah. uh, Super Chunk was on tour, but Laura Balance's sister worked there. And she We dealt with her because we, we would buy mail orders seven inches from them and yeah. sell them in Canada. And I just remember her sitting on the floor packaging up mail orders, and I was like, it's exactly the same in this place as it is in ours. Wow. Yeah. That's was, really it was, it was It was really cool. And, like, I remember I, I went to Chicago, and, uh, stayed at Southern Records, and because we looked up to Southern like this, you know, yeah. another like you know pivotal label and also distributor. They were our distributor, and they were on the floor above Touch and Go, and it was just, it's like wow, it's like a warehouse, like just like we have, just the same <laughs> yeah. sort of deal. Danielle, who ran Southern, lived in the in the building mm. that the label was run out of. It was That's just, really amazing, and I, I think there's a quote I I read sometime in one book that said, "Don't be so amazed by." The people you look up to like that's we always we always think of these people as different types of people they're on different tiers than us mm-hmm. that's really exciting i mean i think there's i know a lot of people who listen to this are these are are young people looking to start a label or or have started a label and there are so many of these labels that you've mentioned that's still around in sonic onion that it's just so intimidating to think how will i ever get to that place mm-hmm. um so i i find that story kind of encouraging yeah, well, I mean, we thought it was encouraging. Yeah, and the but the and then even extrapolating even further, like uh, majors all started the same way with one guy right. who, yeah. who had a right. friend in a band or right. something. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like it's yeah. all those every label started literally the same way. It's not like somebody came up with some business model and to try to put something together. Yeah. Like all of the coolest bands and from the start of rock and roll, it's all. The same way a manager managing somebody who had a relationship and then it just developed from there and Mm. labels developed from there. Like all the big ones in the U.S. that are now global labels all started from nothing. Right. Um, So Yes. And it's the same for bands as it is for for labels. I find, I mean, I'm reading that uh, Roger Daltrey book and it's talking about the who and their early touring. And basically like they had no money till the seventies and like (laughs) not enough money to get flights home from the, from their first tour of the States. And, a lot of the stories that he's talking about on the road and recording, and it just sounds like, like any one of our bands early on in their mm-hmm. career. That's yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said in an interview in Billboard in 1995, that other, <laughs> I'm going to hold you to this. I may regret this. That other Canadian labels weren't going to si- sign the bands that you like. What what were Canadian labels looking for back in '95? Well, I, I guess. I'm wondering what I meant by Canadian labels then. Maybe I meant majors. I think they were signing like I Mother Earth and Our yeah. Lady Peace and right. you know, kind yeah, of commercial you know, sounding rock bands. You know, right. grunge inspired indie rock ripoff right. sort of yeah, yeah. corporate rock. And That's I authentic. Yeah, just stuff that we didn't <laughs> Sorry, like. Guys. And like Sorry, any of those names that came up. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean those are all fine bands. Yeah. I mean, not just yeah. but not the kind of things that we like to or work with. And so we thought we'd just you know, we didn't, we weren't expecting our bands to necessarily go on to have, you know, coast to coast radio airplay, that type of thing. Right. But we thought there are, you know, valid artists and people and we just wanted to help them all we could. And they just didn't seem like they would fit into the mold of other labels. So maybe other labels like ourselves, but not definitely not the larger labels. How are you treated by other labels in Canada? It, it actually was kind of funny because they, they all loved us. Yeah. They, they, I think each of them, 
took us out and tried to get us to do deals with them early on. And we went to every meeting, we went yeah, to every like, dinner. Oh, got another goal. And it just go. kept happening and over and over lunch. and over again. And we were like, <laughs> and we knew them, we knew all the presidents of all the labels. And these are major labels. Yeah, yeah. And like, they we all still do. They we still do. And we're just like, yeah, yes. And you know, no, I don't think we're gonna do that. Again, wow. more more reality sinking in. Like, how small is the Canadian music business? Yeah. Like when you start, you're like, it feels you don't know. So it just ne- just naturally feels overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's huge. This like big corporate mm-hmm. world out yeah. there. And then you start realizing on all these. Again, the presidents of the majors uh, um, have this—you have this vision of who they are, but really they're they're just like we were. They all, everybody started kind of in the same well, way. Well, one of them is kind of like we were. Yeah, <laughs> it's right now, is which is exactly yeah. yeah. President of Universal now is yeah. Jeff Jeffrey from Remedios started Arts and Crafts. It's like right, kind President of of Universal circle. Canada. Now it's kind of weird. How yeah. how yeah. did you turn down these labels? I mean, well, I, I think that. I, I remember looking at all of the things they were offering us and like, I mean, we were, we were younger and we were, you know, probably cockier than we should have been. And we were like, we're not going to do that. Like, that's, why would we do that with you? Why would we want to, you know, I remember, I remember once when we went to Sony um, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he was like, you know, you know, we signed our lady piece, you know, next, the next our lady piece, maybe they could be like on Sonic Onion first you know, get their credibility and right. whatever. And then they'd move on to Sony. We're like, yeah, that yeah, was the exact wrong that. thing to say. I'm like, thanks for letting us know just how yeah, douchey you are. Guy. Denise became president. It was before, was it was cool. before Denise. Denise was cool. Yeah, it was yeah. before um, Denise. But yeah, it wasn't the exact the wrong thing to say to a bunch of like, you know, kind of righteous <laughs> indie yeah. rock guys. And so things were, we work- thought we were pretty precious at the yeah, time. I think. Right. So you don't you don't regret turning down any of those? No, no, right. not at all. Was there like a direct offer just to completely consume you? Yeah, or there were, were these just there, album there was deals? discussion of purchases, distribution deals, co ventures, all kinds of things. And mm. we were just we I mean, we said no to all of it. The only thing we said yes to is uh president of EMI, Dean Cameron, was the actually out of all the people that we worked with, all the or, or you know, took talk to at the time, was like, I'm not gonna offer any you anything really just like if you need something let me know hmm. and i'll help you no That's questions nice. asked yeah. no commitments just like and so the first thing we needed was we um we needed a, a manufacturer that was you know you know at a, you know good price and, and efficient mm-hmm. and emi had their own pressing plant at the time in, in toronto oh, near okay. the airport so we just said, you know what? We need a manufacturer. Would you manufacture for us? He's like, absolutely. So it was just a straight up, yeah. like it would have been with anybody else. Well, like, that's great. Yeah. Well, the masters saved us tons of money. Saved us a lot of money. A great deal. And oh, they were wow. really efficient. They gave us a really that's good nice. deal, which yeah. that was really cool. And there was, yeah. there was no, no commitment beyond that. It was just like, here you go. We're like, okay, perfect. Thanks. We'll do that. How, in the few years you, you became one of the biggest indie labels in Canada, how did that happen? What was, what do you think looking back now? What, what, did, what was it that? I don't know. We took some risks. We did some stupid shit um some crazy <laughs> shows and whatnot like that kind of stuff but we just did i don't know we were just sort of doing what we did and i think we connected with people in the community um in every community that we went to like and we tried really hard to find out okay so who are the you know who are the toronto people we should be hanging out with and who are the mm-hmm. people in kitchener we should, that are like-minded and we just sort of found like-minded people and it was um it was a unique time too right mm-hmm. like i think it's um for indie rock was like people were seeking it out kids in high school and university were like totally engaging with it and it that's what helped us sort of yeah. develop the the model a little bit yeah, we worked really hard we went you know we traveled across this country and the, in the u.s a fair bit too um we went to every record store we went to every radio station and we went to every paper we i mean we got to we got to try and know everybody we could not just for ourselves, but part of it was we knew that when we were on tour, if we went out and made sure we went to all the retailers and went to all the radio outlets, et cetera, that we weren't just setting up a relationship for our own band, but we were setting up more so a relationship for our label mm. and all the other bands that would follow us on that same road, whether it was a week later or two years later, or five, 10 years later. And so we, and we went to a lot of shows. I mean, yeah. we collaborated. Like with we a lot went of on so, too. I we, mean, traded off shows and like I think Everything, yeah. all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is what Everybody. you need to do. You build a network yeah. and you get to know people in the community and then you realize how small it is. Yeah. yeah. And you then- see the same people all the time. I mean, that's what I found. We, And I know even before I met Tim, Sandy and I went to shows 
every night we could. We would drive to London, to Toronto, wherever we did, and we just you just get to know everybody. And well, it's so interesting what you're saying about going to radio stations and going to to record stores across the country because today, starting a label, ninety percent of my contacts are people I've never met. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. they're email relationships yeah. that I have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that we said before the the mics were rolling that you if today you wouldn't start a record label, but if you did start a record label today, would you try to do more of those in person things, or do you think you'd fall into that email trap? I I don't know. I think that if we, I think we'd probably be viewed as weirdos if we wanted to meet everyone face to face now. <laughs> and why yeah. would you want to talk to me in person? That's true. That's so yeah. weird. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I. But that was the key to your success. I, I think so. I mean, I remember. Hmm. I think. Uh, there was an article in Chart Magazine in the 90s in that early time that, that actually called us guerrilla scenesters because <laughs> we were literally everywhere in everyone's face trying to meet people and, you know, talk about what we were doing. Right. And pro- maybe we were a bit over the top. Maybe that's why they gave us that name. Um, but mm. we were just, we were just, I think we were just ambitious and um, really wanted to try our, our hardest to do the best we could for what we were doing. In uh, 94, you released your first compilation, Not If I Smell You First. Um, I read somewhere that was a big release for you guys, and which is interesting because when I spoke with the, the label Kill Rockstars, Porsche said that their breakthrough was this compilation CD that they did, or maybe it was a vinyl, but I'm pretty sure it was a CD, and it had one of a, an, an early Nirvana song on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I've read, that was a, that was a big deal, like... The, uh, for you guys that that compilation CD was something that kind of got things going. What was the deal with compilations and, and, and uh, why did that record do so well for you guys? Well, it's every, it's not that everybody was doing them, but labels, that was a thing. Yeah. Like in the nineties, it was epitaph and fat records and disc. Everybody, everybody, everyone, like every indie rock label had a, had compilations, they all had like series of compilations. Yeah, yeah. and and they weren't necessarily bands that were signed. Were no, they? no, no, no. A lot of it was, was bands that we were friends with, and yeah, bands yeah. that we liked. I mean, um, collaborations, collaborations like uh, Eric's Trip because we toured with Eric's Trip, and yes. um, Head because we played with Head, and Grasshopper because they were like a Toronto institution, and we played with them lots of times. Mm-hmm. Um, bands that were on our label and not on our label. It was just like these are, you know, bands that we like. Hmm. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like bands creating Spotify playlists. It's the yeah, same it's just thing. Totally, right? Yeah. It's, it's just yeah. different now. <laughs> it's not um, as intimate. You can't tan- it's not a tangible sale yeah. um, that you can hold in your hands. Yeah. It's a different yeah. model in today's world, but you know, it still does exist on some level for sure. And again, that's like a collaborative thing where artists are working with helping other artists mm-hmm. digitally. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't really, I mean, it just, we, it was just like we gotta put out a comp. Yeah, we got it. We got it. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I don't know why. That... It's hard to. I guess it's hard to imagine why that would be important now versus then, especially for someone who's much younger than us. But back then, you would, if you wanted to have a playlist, either your you know your friend or a person who wanted to date you would make you like a mixtape. Yeah. And or you would buy a compilation, and like you would have only so much money to go and buy a compilation because you had to buy it. Yeah. And then when you bought it, you would own it and be able to hold it in your hands and you would take it home and insert it into something that would play it back to you. Like that doesn't exist anymore. So you would have, you know, you'd as a teenager, you'd have a handful of records you could listen to right. or borrow from your friends. So it would be important to make one to have it in someone's hands and passed around and loaned to other people. Yeah, and yeah. and yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. So that's why it was important that I think. And also like created, again, it's like a taste maker situation where somebody would buy the comp because they're like, oh yeah, I know Sonic. I know, I know the one mm-hmm. band. Yeah. And then they get turned on to other bands and then they yeah. go buy those other bands records. And oh, that's yeah. how the network sort of expanded. Right. So yeah. that would have been the same for Kill Rock Stars yeah. as for Ep- Epitaph and it's like, you know, you might know the one band on the label, the Treble Charger on right. Sonic on yeah. or the Hayden. Yeah. But then you get the comp and you're like, ooh, Shallow, never seen them. Oh, <laughs> they're heavy. Yeah. I like it. Totally. And then go down that rabbit hole. I guess it's kind of like a calling card to some extent. Because, I mean, we'd put out, at that point, we'd only put out cassettes. And uh, our we first... We needed to step up. We needed to step up from that. And we just kind of thought, like, here's... It's basically like, here's our... This is what we're doing. This is what we're about. These are the kinds of things we like. You know, was this, the compilation what format was that? It was on CD, CD but there was an accompanying seven inch. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So going to CD from cassette was a big deal for you guys. 
Well, yeah, it was the yeah. new era. It was yeah. the new era. Like going, it's like the now we're now in the go for now CD, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. No, we're not going to even be making them in a year because yeah. people don't know how to, there's going to be no way to play them. Yeah. Um, and now it's all digital. Yeah. I mean, basically, like when we started, CDs weren't that old. No. Like at all. Like, yeah. And the prices were kind of continually coming down in terms of being able to manufacture them. They were in the big tall cases. Yeah, and the big like when they we used started to come in cardboard cases sometimes. Oh, like really? they were like Oh, I don't remember. Because that. basically all the record stores were fitted to hold out records which were 12 inches tall. Oh. These CDs were only like, you know, four. Well, I do remember tall. when they came in those plastic security cases. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, yeah. when there was very few CDs out, they would box them in these 12 inch tall boxes with the CD at the top. top. Oh yeah. my gosh. It was it was incredibly ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess the whole uh, thing seems ridiculous now. Shipping plastic all over North America. No kidding, and it was such a. They were. I mean, I spent so much money on CDs in the nineties yeah, and two thousands, and uh, I still, I still have hung on to them. I have half of them in my office and half of them in my basement. Mm-hmm. I do believe my kids are going to get rich off of them <laughs> at some point, or my grandkids. <laughs> but unless they're probably not even playable in a few years. But um, yeah, I do remember that. I do remember that switch to CD. It was such a big thing. And mm-hmm. I, I asked for Christmas to get all of my tapes onto CD. Mm-hmm. So basically I had to rebuy everything. And they were $25 Canadian, I think, at the time or mm-hmm. more. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a history toward the development of format changes. Hmm. Like, you know, and there's a conspiracy behind it, too, that the, you know, the majors keep changing or forcing changes in formats. I don't think they have any control over what's happening anymore, quite frankly. None of right. us do. It's very much um, tech driven. Right. Um, but, you know, the change in formats. This is the first time in the history of the world the change in formats actually dropped the revenue for the music business. Interesting. Right? So, and that's a challenge mm-hmm. for all of us. Yeah. All the way down to the artist. Right. Trying to figure out a way to monetize music. And the music has become, on some level, more of a marketing tool to a brand, to brands mm. than it is the actual music in some cases. I, You know, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I think it ultimately is music lovers love music, but there's also at the top level, these brands out there that are more about fucking bullshit brands than actually writing good songs, quite mm-hmm. frankly. And they've got a lot of these big hit makers have like 20 people, 20, co- like yeah. 20 fucking people yeah. writing a song. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> just fuck off. Right. Like at this <laughs> point, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Co-write is cool. And I think it's very valid, but once you get to a point, it becomes a manufacturing process and they're just manufacturing garbage mm. there. I'm taking yeah, the high road again, but, but there's so much shit out there. I don't want to name any names, but they're the biggest. Yeah. So yeah. you know who you are. Yeah. You're writing crap. Um, well, thanks for listening. You, you and your 19 <laughs> friends. There's so many great artists creating great music, right? Well, let's go back to the format for a second, because you were, you were this label where, so you maybe were at the tail end of, of vinyl. Labels probably weren't doing vinyl in the early 90s as much. But you were doing cassettes, then you switched to CDs, then you saw iTunes um, come into play. A lot of labels like myself came into existence right at the beginning of the digital era or while the digital was happening. And so when we would occasionally do CDs, but I'm interested, what is your perspective when you see the format change so much? Does it make you grumpier because you miss the days when CDs were $25? How does that affect you when you see things change so much? No, you've got to adapt to it. I mean, we we like... (laughs) so clearly saw the digital era and like when mp3s came there was a bump there was a spike in music business revenues right like so that was a positive up till very early on yeah yeah really up till streaming it's been spikes for the music business because people were buying mp3s and cds yeah and not not just that but there was also this influx of cash into the few digital companies that existed i mean remember prior to e-music there was a company called good noise they were one of the first Mm -hmm. uh, like mp3 retailers and they were going around, they're giving everybody advances. Like, yeah. here's here's a pile of money. We want rights to sell your records non-exclusively in our shops. Wow. It was just like, and then that sort of slowed down. But it was still, it was like, it was income. Mm-hmm. And wow. it was income in addition to selling what you're already selling. Which, yeah. and then, but once iTunes happened, we were like, hmm. this shit's over. Yeah, we could see there was going to be a yeah. distinct change. And that's when we started making other plans on how you know, continuing down the road, obviously it's not like we're abandoning digital or mm-hmm. turning our back mm-hmm. to it. We knew that was the new world. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, but where, if there's a 
revenue change, where else can we be focusing our energy to make the revenue that might be lost or yeah. gained or, you know what I mean? Just keeping, keeping your eyes open. And was, it. was that, does that take us to the chapter of, of distribution? Is that when we were in distribution yeah, we, already? Yes. Okay. So in 90, 98, we separated our two, our record company into, because we did our own distribution. We, okay. we set up our own network for distributing records by literally going to every record store, shipping across the country by ourselves. And then we started bringing on other labels. Um, early on. Early on, like, you know, other independents like like Skeen yeah, from like Minneapolis, right, right Discord. And, like really early on. And wow. Murder, when, when uh, Sloan were running their label, we, we were distributing all these records to independent, our independent outlets. And we got to the point where that started to, to take on a, a bigger and bigger part of our day-to-day. And when one of the other major distributors in the country went out of business, um, or was about to go out of business, we knew what we, everyone could see it coming, where we basically, at that point, thought, okay, the label's not going to be Flavor of the Month forever. We're set on doing our own distribution. The most efficient way to do that is to fill every box and help out other labels that we, were, we liked and mm-hmm. want to work with. And mm-hmm. we had an opportunity basically happen in October of 98. I can't remember the exact time, but basically... One distributor went out of business and we picked up. It was 97. It's 97. Maybe it was 97. Yeah. And we picked up Rap Records, Epitaph Records, Revelation, everybody, wow. all in one all, all in one space of one or two weeks. Yeah, but and a month. But a we month. We got a list. Yeah. Wow. We had a list, a list and we were always on the cargo phone. labels and it was just like cold calling cargo labels labels. So like, can I, <laughs> I just want to interrupt you because I want you to keep this going, but I read somewhere that it was hard initially to get your records into traditional retail stores. Is that and true? Initially it was. Yeah. Yeah. But, but by this time, by, by this like time, H&B it and, and Sun and sunrise and music world by this time, by 97, were they carrying your records? Uh, yeah, they all were. Okay. Yeah. But basically the way we made that happen is we were, we persistently made sure that those chains had our stock on consignment. They would take stock on consignment. Oh, okay. And consignment is essentially, you know, for, you know, Unfortunately, it's really there, or at least was back then, you know, to sort of pay lip service to the local artist, put your stuff in the store. I'm not paying for it. If it sells, I'll pay you. Okay. And so we would, you know, and you know, the history of consignment, I think, is that by and large, most of the stuff dropped off doesn't get picked up for sale and doesn't, the owner of it, the artist often doesn't come back and get it. So it's kind of a, for a lot of retailers, it was a bit of a nightmare. Right. Taking all this stock, it's sitting in the store. I never hear from them again, right. or or I hear from them every week and they haven't sold anything or they've sold one record. And we kind of were up against that, but we basically consigned our records across the country. And mm. they're and we got the same story from almost everyone the first time. We'll see you when we see you. You're never coming back. Yeah. These will never sell. But we always came back and they always sold because wow. we were you know out, out there having our bands tour. We were marketing our records, trying to get people to pay attention. And so we were making sure that our records sold. And that gave us an importance and those stores for our labels records and the ones we were distributing that the average person dropped off consignment didn't have. Right. And what happened is that eventually the president of HMB at the time, Paul Aloffs came to us when we had, I don't know, we had like 15 or 20 titles in our catalog. And he said, I'm going to make the unprecedented move of making you a supplier to our multinational chain with 20 SKUs, which wow. doesn't happen. Yeah. Wow. And he's like, and we we're like, that's amazing. Why, you know, why are you doing that? He's, he's basically said, because I can't have you coming into our main street our young street store in Toronto and emptying our cash registers of cash because that's <laughs> how pay they you pay. they pay you oh. in cash. Wow. So we were selling so many records. We went in there like every that's week great. and we would empty out all the cash registers. Wow. And they said it's become a security concern. <laughs> so <laughs> it was awesome. It was like, great at the time. We were like, all right. Just thousands and thousands in cash. I think I walked out of there with close to $20,000 once. Yeah. Oh my. You know, for sales for, you know, a few weeks or something. Yeah. So things like we were selling a lot of records. So when they made us a supplier, it allowed us to basically have access to, at the time, I think they had 50 stores across the country. And we were now being paid in 30 days for records we were selling. Right. They paid extremely fast. They were really open to uh, the records we were selling and we worked hard to make them sell. And then, and that got you the same deal with, other retailers? Yeah, basically we yeah. knocked them down one by one until yeah. we basically, yeah. we had accounts with everybody. So in 97 then, you you pick up the distribution rights for other labels similar to yours, mm-hmm. but from America, mm-hmm. who didn't have Canadian distribution? Yeah. And what were they or doing? Or they did, but they 
or with someone they were unhappy with okay. or someone who was going out of business. Yeah. And yeah. were any of them trying to do it themselves? No, you couldn't. Right. Okay. So I don't then, know how we did it. I mean, it seems insane. So in records, Epitaph, they would, they would ship records to Hamilton. Yeah. And yeah. then did you have a warehouse or did yeah. you keep it? Yeah. Well, the building on Wilson street was wow. essentially turned into, turned into warehouse. a warehouse, mostly warehouse. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It started on one floor with our offices and then it turned into two and then our offices ended up being on the third. We kept moving up floors to make wow. room for more records. And so and then so we how, started moving back down. And then we started moving back down. Now we're moved over here. It's you know, it's pretty. Apt. It was a good trend. Like it was, you know, yeah. It was like, well, it's the way things go, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, did I, you enjoy doing that? I I did. I think for quite a while, but by the end, it was really it got really, really tough. Yeah. Um, especially once um, digital started to enter into the the equation. And it also became difficult because, you know, HMV was, you know, a, a great chain to work with and they paid really quickly, but they were the only one that did that. The rest of them mm. would kind of hold you hostage for payment. Right. And on average, one of those chains would file for some form of bankruptcy or another, you know, every, every year, year, every 18 yeah. months. Right. And essentially the margin was so thin in that business that you would basically lose your, you know, a good deal of your margin for the year. Right. Eating up someone else's bankruptcy. So when... When iTunes opened up here, you know, and given the difficulty of that business, we were like, because I mean, we have a unique, we had a unique perspective on how that business worked. Because if you step back a bit and look at it, it's like, okay, this week we brought in two skids of records from Fat Records. They're sitting in the back parking lot. They wouldn't even come into the building often. They would sit in the in the in the parking spaces, get repackaged into others onto other skids, and go directly out with UPS to all the chains. Hmm. And They'd sit there for a while, and if they didn't sell, they'd come back to our warehouse, and we'd repackage it, and we'd send it back to Fat Records in San Francisco. Right. So I'm thinking, look, look at all the amount of money that's being spent on creating these records. Mm. They're shipping them here, all the gas that's being spent, all the trucking, that we're shipping them out to every store in Canada. Then the, what doesn't sell comes back, and then we're shipping it back to San Francisco. And right. I'm like, this is insane. Yeah. And like, this other alternative has already opened up, right. where you can just like download it to then your iPod. And like we're like we're like this is this makes a multitude of sense more than this right. well, other thing over here like right. shipping this stuff all over the place is insanity. And so like I think we pretty clearly saw like this one's gonna win yeah. like large. So we gotta get out of doing this one right. <laughs> completely because it's gonna when it goes down it's gonna go down in flames. So when did, so you don't do that anymore? We do not do that anymore. And no. so when did you kind of fold that up? Was it a slow process or three year transition? Three -year transition. Sold it to Maple. Yeah, we sold the distribution uh, business and ran it in conjunction with Maple Music. 2028. And by 2011, we were completely out of it. Okay. Okay. And, but there was a time in the early mid 2000s, you did big titles. You did Jag Jaguar. Is that right? Yeah. 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 We worked with Secret Canadian. Canadian. They were one of our best. Yeah. Oh, okay. That great company to work yeah. with. And like, I mean, great roster of labels and artists. Yeah. Oh, we had huge selling yeah. records, like yeah. all of that, like the Safian, Bonnie, yeah. Bonnie Vare, yeah. like Tom all Waits and Yeah. Anthony and the, um, Anthony and the Johnsons. Johnsons. Yeah. We did the, um, yeah, like all the epitaph stuff. We have a gold record for Tom Waits. Oh, wow. like you know, we did selling the, offspring. The first sheep, the sheep dog record before they did. We did, we did, we did first sheep no dog effects. Record. We would ship thousands of records. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was just just tons. Of every label had their, their band or their couple bands that were the big ones, right? And like whenever those records came out, like you know, we would. We'd be prepped, like, and it would be big, long conversations. We'd mm. have them with Dave at Epitaph all the time. Whenever there was a Pennywise record, a Rancid yeah. record, a Bad Religion amazing. record, an Epitaph, yeah. you know, how many comp. shipping to who? Yeah, the Tom Waits. It must be nice spend. to yeah. affiliate with those labels too. That was amazing. It was, like, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. we got to try. Like, I traveled to California and go and visit all our suppliers there and be there for a week driving around like a was fool. It, did it ever make sense? <laughs> did it ever make sense to manufacture any of their records in Canada? Oh, it, we did for some, some of, them, of them, but for the yeah. most part, I mean, those labels were doing really large numbers, okay. a lot of them, and Canada to them was a small, small piece of the pie. Right. I think Epitaph had a plant. They were they were pressing in Canada, oh, okay. and they so it was a really yeah, yeah. At some point, it was a simple, you know, tr stock transfer from their manufacturer to us, and so. Um, you know, we're kind of, as we shift into, you know, where we are today, um, and I asked the same thing to Sub Pop because I thought it was, this is something that interests me because we talked about being this like 
when you got started, this underdog, these, this pesky little label. Um, is it hard to stay cool? Is that something that stays on your mind? Is is that, you know, you were this grungy label in the 90s. What does that look like when you get 25 years into it? We still do. It looks like this. It looks like, yeah, <laughs> you can't see it, but it's pretty glorious. Yeah. Um, it's We're the same. We're still yeah, fighting for our acts and trying yeah. to do the best we can for our artists. And we've diversified our business. And whenever we start something new, we've always taken on the same we have this conversation it seems like every day uh because it's it's always something but we've take we take on new projects and we always build them from zero right mm. you have to have that idea of like you have to start it from we know how to do it but you still have to start from the same grassroots level and build these things up no, nothing happens overnight there are not overnight successes in the music mm -hmm. business you know um and you know traditionally good artists develop over time and you have to, they need a network of people to support them. And that's what we did and always have done mm. and still do. Mm. And we try to do our best we can. And it's, you know, the world has definitely changed. We always thought, you know, having success in Canada was like, okay for bands, but generally you want to look at a global, you want global success for your yeah. artists. Yeah. Um, so, and that's a hard thing to, to fund and it's a hard thing to manage mm -hmm. so it's baby steps in all respects if you want to add to that mark like um one thing i'd add is that i think that consistently over 25 years i think we've ran our label but i think that knowing how we like to run our label and the types of things we like uh, artists we like to work with where i think we're pretty cognizant of the fact that that label is never going to be something that will support a multitude of staff or that type of thing. It's, it's always going to be, you know, records we like, artists we like, and we're going to have our hits and we're going to have our misses. Mm. And I think consistently we've always, knowing that, I've said, okay, well, we're always going to have to do something else alongside that makes sense. Mm. So whether that's, you know, running a distribution company or uh, running a large festival or running, you know, beer festival or managing acts. We, we do, we, yeah, we run a venue. We do, yeah. we do a number of things. And those things aren't always there to support the fact that we run our label. And it's just kind of like this, it's not a, a side hobby. It's something we've always taken seriously and wanted to continue. But, you know, we're happy to make sure we do other things to make it make sure it continues. And they, they all connect to one another. They all too. do connect. They, it's they all do. connected. Yeah. And, and ultimately. That diversity, is that strictly financial or is it to keep you excited and keep you interested? It definitely think, keeps us excited. I think both, sure. really. Yeah. Though. Yeah, yeah. Both, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know. It's always something new. When again, you have a couple misses on one thing, there's the other thing to help. Right. So it's like checks and balances and we're not, not all of our eggs are in one basket, yeah. so to speak. And, but it's again, challenging to manage all those things. So having the right people on staff to help us and like us being realistic and also trying to manage expectations on mm -hmm. all those levels. That's mm -hmm. where sometimes it's, it's, it's hard every day, but that's, just doing business is yeah. hard in general. It's like yeah, we yeah. love what we do, so it's not hard. It, right? it keeps it interesting. I mean, it can be, in some ways, it, it can at times take your focus away from from some things. But that being said, I think there's a lot of jobs out there where you do one thing and you mm -hmm. do the same thing over and over. Mm -hmm. And like every week, every day is the same. Every week's the same. Every month's the same. Every year's the same. Then it just, you know, flips over the next year and you're doing the same thing over and over again. And I think there's an element in what we do that has those types of drudgeries, I suppose, but we mix it up with like all this other stuff. So it's, you're constantly switching gears, which is, I think, you know, it's, it's good in some ways. It's also frustrating because I remember, I think I remember once I was driving home and I took a call from someone here about porta potties being delivered to a festival, <laughs> followed by concrete being delivered for a building we owned, followed by an artist from a phone call from an artist that we managed all in the space of like 10 minutes driving home. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, okay, concrete. <laughs> Artist porta potties. I'm just like, you know, it's, it's just like it's one of those things. Yeah, okay. that sounds like a band you would have signed in the '90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like you know, and just to shift over to that for a second, there are these eras of Sonic Onion, and if you said that name to someone in Canada, it would mean something different over the years. If you ask somebody today who is Sonic Onion, they'd probably say they're the Supercall guys. I'm curious how that idea came about, and more specifically, how do you justify it? I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but how do you justify it being a label or having the label associated with this festival, which to our listeners, it's a huge 
um, Canadian festival that's been going on for it's coming to its 11th year or 12th year now 11, and, yeah. and um, a music festival and, and it's incredible acts how did that come about what, what was the 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 origin of that uh, well it was an experiment really um, I that you know came out of community and like you know we're rooted in Hamilton and there's all these great things starting to happen downtown. I mean, you know, we've been in our downtown Hamilton, so to equate it to other American cities, like I think, but Hamilton's probably even doing better, but like, you know, the downtown cores of like Detroit mm -hmm. and Cleveland and the, those sort of gritty ish mm -hmm. type of cities, yeah. they died, right? Mm -hmm. They literally just died. Hamilton downtown was on its, on its fucking, the pulse was like pretty low. <laughs> yeah. um, but we were down here and that enabled us to, you know, buy property, have a big warehouse, be able to be in the core of, of our city um, and do all the things we did and play, you know, have shows at all the clubs, the gritty clubs that are typically always in downtown areas. Yeah. Um and uh, we noticed community changing and people moving in and it's always the artists that come into the shit neighborhoods yeah. to revitalize them. <laughs> so, and that's what happened. There's all these like cool, like, you know, people moving in and it uh, slowly evolved over a few years. And we're finally like, Hey, look at that. We can walk down the street and actually talk to people. <laughs> or have a kind of coffee. Or find a yeah. good coffee, <laughs> right? Good coffee yeah. shops opened up and um, but they're all independent businesses like us and like lots of like-minded people and art crawl had started and we thought, well, it'd be really cool to close the street and contribute musically. We were putting, you know, illegal shows on in our building and, <laughs> and in stores in the store and whatnot. Yeah. And we thought it'd be neat to put it on the street. And that's kind of what it just started as an experiment. And the first couple of years really was just sort of like, well, it was an expense, um, that was a, a, a for a number of years. It was a heavy expense for us to try to develop it. Right. But once we kind of got over the hump, I guess maybe year five ish, something like that, it started to be something that was like, okay, we're in the live business now, full on. We've got this. We've we started a beer festival. We run Canada Day for the city of Hamilton now. There's other events, mm -hmm. that, bigger events that we do. We have a club. The live business is something that was always important to us. We always did it. Right. It just mm -hmm. evolved and took a backseat when So this was something you were comfortable with? Is oh, yeah. Like we had done it right from the start. We had yeah. lots of failures early on too, like with events that we ran that, you know, um, that didn't do as well as we had hoped. And so we had knowledge and we evolved into it and it was, it became a methodical step, yeah. you know, to, to the business and also a way to promote our bands, promote the local community bands, tie our local community Again, it was the same sort of thing where when you bring a big band and you put a local band on as an opener, then they get to know one another. Mm -hmm. Sort of those synergies started to happen. So it just, uh, it evolved. And then it turned into something completely unexpected. Mm -hmm. Like the size of it now yeah. is not what we had planned. Right. It seemed like a great way to promote like local arts and culture and our city. And I think initially we met a lot of resistance even from the city, mm -hmm. I think initially. And I, a lot of people were like, well, we can't do that in Hamilton. I said, well, why? Like, why not? Like, it means something. There was an urban yeah. festival, a mustard festival. Mustard, yes, mustard seed, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was always small and never really, it kind of served a real niche community, like mm. music community, and, our, and it didn't expand outside of that. And it eventually sort of dissipated. But it, it had its moment. And part that was part of it. Like, it had happened before in a different area. And we had this resurgence on James Street, and it seemed like, you know, the natural place for it with the arts and the fact that the business that was evolving around the arts had people that had the same type of, um, the same type of people, very culture driven people. Right. So how did you, how did you expect it to affect the label when you got started 11 years ago? We just thought it might be an opportunity for our bands to play with other bands and, okay. you know, develop that yeah. way and yeah. then help other artists in the local community. And like, so that we're, forging relationships that maybe wouldn't be forged otherwise. How has it affected the label? It's eaten up all our time. Well, it definitely <laughs> takes up a lot of time. Yeah. It's a year round, multi-year planning. From a public perspective, do you think it's it's helped the reputation or it's grown oh, yeah. the brand? Oh yeah. yeah I mean, our I reputation so. is pretty impeccable as far as like what we do for community mm -hmm. here. I mean, not, Absolutely. Every, not everyone. Would agree <laughs> well, with I, that, think, but I mean, yeah, not everyone, yeah, not everyone likes it. Yeah. You know, yeah. We're elitists or something like that, but there'll always be people on both yes. uh, ends yeah. of the spectrum and then the people in between. But I think like, you know, we've put our money where our mouth is mm -hmm. and we do, a, we do a lot for our community and we love to do that. 
Yeah. And so do the artists on our label are of the same mindset too. They love to give back to the community. So it's all, it's all tied together and it's also very unique. Like this type of thing doesn't occur in Toronto or really any other cities. Burlington's is generally in a park. This is urban. And that was really something that we really wanted to do too. Like we didn't want to do a big free festival in a park. We wanted it to do it in right in In the the core, you know, like where it's, it's super fun and cool and amazing for people to experience closed roads. Like just that alone. It's so great. Just to be able to walk down a road without a car on it somehow feels good. Well, I think <laughs> being so close to, to residential areas too, for me, it's one of my best uh, show memories is for, for us living in Hamilton, being an hour outside of Toronto, all of the shows we've ever seen, the big shows have mm-hmm. been in Toronto and they've, and it's, it's been an hour and a half drive there and then three hours back because they're closed the highways in the middle mm-hmm. of the night. Yeah. And so the, one of the best memories was my buddy and I walking from my house down <clears throat> to see Spoon, mm-hmm. then seeing uh, Spoon getting their tour bus and walking past them and going back into my house. Like, it's just incredible. <laughs> yeah. I would have never guessed that that would have happened, you know, 10 years ago. That was just, that was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah I mean, and those it, types of experiences are like, that's what, that's what like makes it unique, right? Because mm. you don't necessarily really get that at a big yeah. festival in the park that you've paid. Like the artists are like, ooh, they're back there oh, right. in yeah. the trailers. Yeah. You don't get an opportunity to like walk past the back end of the stage yeah. to see them. Yeah, totally. Or then walk the festival now. Like, you know, just recently, like last year, like speaking to lights afterward, like she came in early. She knew that there was a great vibe and she wanted to see for herself. And she walked the entire length of the festival, spent oh, wow. time talking to vendors yeah. and like saw all the art pieces and, and like was raving. And that's what we want, mm. right? We want the higher level and all the artists really, but we want the, that's how the festival continues to evolve because she goes back to Vancouver and starts talking to other people that she knows in her management team and agent about how the experience for the artist was like awesome yeah and that's again what we've tried to, to, to I think do the best we can it's been so great the stories i've heard is not just from the music standpoint but you know my friend jiller guitars and, and what it's like yeah. to to be a a, a booth at super crawl mm-hmm. i've heard of stores along the strip who do more business in that weekend than they do in the whole mm-hmm. fourth quarter uh or more probably mm-hmm. um i i saw somewhere and i'm sure it's more now but it's eight and a half million dollars in in uh, money spent on site for the weekend is that yeah the full economic impact is like over 16 million now for wow. the region for the region but hamilton yeah. the direct money in hamilton is around eight yeah i mean that's incredible i think what's great about it too is that it gives you an opportunity to see something for free you might you might pay for elsewhere or you might not be able to afford to pay yeah. for elsewhere so i mean like i'm thinking for like kids kids that are you know either too young to get to toronto to go see someone that they might, might be playing at the horseshoe mm-hmm. maybe they can't get there maybe they can't afford to go there Maybe they're too young to even get in there. Yeah, that's but right. like now they can just like, mom, dad, I'm going down to James Street to watch, like you said, Spoon or yeah. Sharon Jones or Thurston Moore or, yeah. or Colorado or whoever it might be. And it's yeah. like, they're going to see, they're going to get inspired by seeing all these artists here for free. And like, we never had that opportunity as kids. Free was such a, yeah, agreed. A freed was such a big thing. I mean, that was that right from the beginning, a free festival? Yeah. I mean, there was, I think there's really no way to monetize an urban festival, right. I don't think. <laughs> like, you know, so just picking the location in itself meant that there had to be, yeah. it had to be free. And we've, you know, had to evolve around that to try to figure out ways to fund the festival. So mm-hmm. we run a lot of ticketed shows that are Super Crawl Presents that help filter money right. back in for the right. proper festival. Yeah. So, and that's a model that is used by a, a number of free festivals around Ontario mm-hmm. and the country. And then, um, but being able to do it for that, obviously there's limitations. Can't book Drake. Um <laughs> Not enough room on James Street North for that guy uh, in general anyway. And um, you know what I mean? Like you just, yeah. there's a limit to the yeah. to the level of artists that we can develop. But at the same time, we're able to like book our Kells before they turn into a band that can sell 20,000 yeah. tickets at yeah. the stadium, totally. which is amazing, right? Totally. And, and help, yeah. you know, keep that cycle of life going. And I think that, you know, it was good synergy between us and them. And same with like other local bands, Monster Truck and Tom Wilson and Tara. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all these artists get opportunities through us right from local stage opening slots to like headlining. Yeah, it's great to see bands grow through the years. And they grow and then they move on and they go beyond us. And it's like, 
are awesome, yeah. right? Yeah. Like that's what we want. Yeah, we want to be able to support our local CNN on locals and develop them in the in in Hamilton. And and that leads to, I mean, we see a lot of you guys um, lobbying at City Hall and 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 trying to get more funds for this. And we see you as the face of this festival. But there's the label is still running, right? You're yeah. still very active. managing bands, and and you just signed Basement Revolver, which is, uh, I think they're a huge band. I think they have a huge potential. Um, so, so you're still committed to it, to signing bands and, and doing more of that, what you originally did in, in 1992. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We yeah. just hired a new label manager too. So, mm. you know, we're still investing in the label because um, we think it's important and we love it and we love working with acts and we love, you know, management is new for us. Quite frankly, we managed from day one but we didn't know we were managing. <laughs> and then when we did realize we were managing, we're like, man, we should really be charging for this, but we didn't. Yeah. And then, and, and yeah, then we were, yeah, we were a bit laissez-faire with our bands. Like, oh, just do what you want. It'll be cool. But then yeah. we realized all the bands that have management seem to be doing best. best yeah. <laughs> we should do that. Yeah. They need direction. Right. right so yeah. so right. now it's like a combination and that's part of the way the labels evolve too. It's like, you know, in general, we want to manage the bands that we signed to the mm. label. And then when they outgrow us as a label, We'll still be managers and grow them to other levels and license deals around the world and what have you. So, and every act is different and everything's going to evolve in a different way. I think it's so interesting to see someone like Tara Lightfoot, who you, you, you talked earlier about this overnight success. You, you often look and think, wow, that's a local artist who's performing on these big stages or, or getting these awards. And you think, man, she really that happened fast. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's just, it's Not easy to think task, that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, I remember Graham Rockingham saying in 2011, he said, you know who plays every night is Tara Lightfoot. She plays every night, everywhere with any band. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that was 10, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it's, she's a great story of so much that goes on behind the scenes with an artist. Yeah, sure. absolutely. I booked her. Super crawl. I didn't even know who she was. I actually knew Annie yeah. better than I knew mm. Tara and Annie um, and Sarah and Tara oh, were in a three-piece, you know, kind of acoustic. Yeah. Right. Right. Folk, yeah. Folk okay. I remember band. that. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I get kind of got tipped off. Oh yeah, you should you should you know book these girls and she go see Tara. Right. Yeah. And I didn't know who she was. The first super crawl. We put her in a little tent. And, <laughs> and right from there, I mean, her personality's been, you know. Oh, yeah. Her- yeah, forward reaching. <laughs> I remember she walked in the office when I first met her for the first time, and I was like, "How come we don't know each other?" Because like everyone, we all, yeah, she's got to know. I don't know. But then I hung out with her one night at the Brain, and I was like, I, I remember walking in the next day. I'm like, "We should manage her." It was just like her her personality, just like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, something about she was her. The first management client, really official management right. client. So, um, but you could see it. Right. And, but those number those first there, number of years, there was not really a, she didn't have a direction. And, um, I think we've, you know, it's been a good partnership. Mm-hmm. We've sort of focused her the best we can, um, to, you know, do a career in music. And that's what she really wanted. She decided that one day, basically, she's yeah. like, you guys are going to manage me. She basically did the management deal. I think she's like, you guys are going to manage me and I'm going to be a career artist and this is what we're going to do. And I was like, okay. That's great. That's amazing. Uh, and you guys don't mind doing that managing thing. I mean, that seems like uh, it would be something for I, I younger think, people. I, no, I mean, see, I, I think the, opposite. I don't know. I don't have I think, any desire I think the to go opposite. on tour. I think the opposite. I mean, because we had people who have asked us to manage them over the years. Some that have gone on to like significant success that we turned down that, we should not have. Yeah. But I remember absolutely. saying to one person who called, I won't say who it is, <clears throat> but she, she said, I know you guys, I've known you for a long time. I trust you guys. I really need help. And I think you guys would be great at doing it. And I just remember thinking we were running our distribution company at the time. I'm like, I think this person is an amazing artist. And I'm just like, you're going to go on awesome things, yeah. but we're not the people to do it right now. Because I said, I don't think we know enough yet. Right. And that was in, I don't know, mid two thousands, I think that person has gone on to be very successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that now, like when we kind of started doing it like a few years ago, yeah. I kind of thought, okay, well, I feel like we, I feel like we've, we've actually physically done a lot of the jobs that you need to know about mm. to know almost every aspect, whether yeah, it's absolutely. live promoter, license and, deals, distribution, yeah, like we've yeah. done every kind of deal. We know what, 
We know what joint ventures with labels look like. We know what everything looks like. We've gone through it all over the last 25 years. And I feel like, well, you know, 99% of the stuff that lands on our desk, we can figure out. If we yeah. can't figure it out, some of our amazing staff will figure it out. I guess the reason I ask is just, it seems like management is, is such a hard thing to do. It, it just seems like it it's is. one of the it's hardest a, it's things. A, it's a massive commitment. It's a commitment. Yeah. Like, it's right. like yeah. basically it's we feel like it is rewarding. We feel like it's, um, I mean, family's not even, doesn't really touch it. You get very in, get very involved in people's lives mm -hmm. and then, you have to choose wisely and mm -hmm. it has to be the right fit at the right mm -hmm. time. And we've been very selective in yeah. who we're working with. They literally yeah. do become like part of your family. I think to some extent, like, I mean, and the, the longer it goes on, the closer, I mean, like, yeah, to the point where like Tara will like literally email my wife and say, listen, I'm going to take Mark away for a while. <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> like it's, it's like that. It, it's reward. Is it rewarding though? Oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah, for yeah. yeah. We've always been yeah. community guys and like love people and love to work with people. And I think that also the way we've evolved in our business, we're, we're at the right age. We're at the, it's the right time. And yeah, it's a big commitment, but we're, we've always been committed. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels really good to have, more input and not necessarily control, but just input into like trying to create success for other people mm. where we've all, we've had it, but it was not quite the same in the nineties, no. you know, it was a different time for us. Um, and yeah, timing's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I think, um, I know for me and, and we've met before and running a label in Hamilton or having the courage to start a label in Hamilton today is easier because of the, the trail that you guys have matted down. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. And yeah. thanks for doing this podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's cool. Congrats. Thanks. thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. You can check out these guys at soniconion.com. Onion is spelt U-N-Y-O-N. And I kind of forgot to ask why, but check them out at S-O-N-I-C-U-N-Y-O-N, Sonic Onion Records. Um, and uh, they're doing some really cool stuff for their 25th, including a documentary that's coming out. They're doing, a, a, I think it's like a four-disc vinyl or a two-disc vinyl um, to celebrate all the years and everything they've done. Plus, these guys are super young, and they're doing some amazing stuff here in our city and in Canada and in North America. And so they're still signing really, really cool bands, and they're still doing really, really great things. And that's something that I find inspiring. Um, and I think there's so much more. There's probably another great 25 years ahead, and uh, and then we'll follow up. Let's we'll do a follow up episode in uh, in what would that be? I don't know. 20. Um, I'm not going to do the math. 2044, I guess. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please tell a friend. Please talk about this podcast on Reddit and on Twitter. That kind of stuff really helps. I really appreciate it.